So as, as Pastor Steve said, we are starting a sermon series on uh, good times. And this is an exciting time because we are, we're living in a, in, a, in a culture, we're living in an area of, of time of life that is really, a lot of us think is, we're, we're facing difficulties, we're facing hardships, we're facing uh, isolation and oppression, so on and so forth. But you know, in, in reality, there's not a lot of difference between um, the first century Christians and us today. There's not a lot of difference between what's going on. The Christians and the Romans, the Romans came in, uh, had, slavery was going on, taking place, so on and so forth. Um, so there's not a lot of difference between the two, where they are and where we are today. I don't know about you, but I'm a controllist. I like to control things. I like things in my realm. Um, I, I like things certain ways, as long as I'm directing them those certain ways. If someone else is directing me, I'm not really fond of it sometimes. Um, but our, our theme, this, the sermon series is good times. As, as Steve said, it's with JJ. It's, it's with those, that, that old TV show. It was in the 1970s. I watched reruns uh, because I'm not as old as some people. Uh, Pastor Steve, uh, Pastor Michael, they're much older than me. And um, so I, was, I, I watched the reruns of the good times. But you know, one of my favorite characters was JJ. He was a tall guy, uh, kind of squirrely. Uh, always saying dynamite. Uh, I really connected with him, I think, because we, we just had a, a kindred spirit. And uh, he was always one of my favorite guys. But as we look at this, you know, we're, we're talking about today some different... Uh, and I have to, I have got to give you, um, if, you're, if you're looking at the study guide on your phone, or you're, just throw it away. Just throw it to the side. <laughs> That's another sermon for another day. Um, and poor Jerry, he's got to keep up with me on slides. Last night I was praying and um, just, we, Lori and I received a phone call from, from a young gentleman we've been praying for for a long time, um, for almost a year. And he called and when he called me, he said, hey, Michael, I just want to know what does it, what do I need to do to make sure I'm in heaven when I die? And I will tell you, my friends, that is the most, that if you want to make a pastor's day, call and ask that question. If you're already saved, good job, goodbye. You know, I'm not, not really... You know, but when a non-believer, when someone who is searching for their faith calls and asks that question, it just really, really just made my heart, I mean, just, just overjoyed. And so last night I was praying. I had the sermon done several weeks ago. And um, last night the Lord just really spoke to my heart that I needed to change some things. So I was up until about 2 or 3 last night, my poor wife doing the slides for me, sending them off to Michael. He had to do some things for us and so on and so forth. But I just want you to let you know that study guide is gone. Um, we're, I'm going to try to keep up to the slides but what, one thing I want to look at today is we're starting the good times. And most of the time as we look at, at good times in our lives, normally we have to go through difficult times to get to that good time. And we see that throughout the scriptures that we're going to talk about today. But as I was talking to this young man, I wanted to share with him what the Gospels look like. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Just give him a very brief illustration what each, each Gospel had kind of attained. So I want to share that with you. Matthew, when we read the Gospel of Matthew, he presents the promised one is here. He, if you look at Matthew, you see the credentials of the, of the genealogy going through. Mark, he presented Jesus. This is how he worked, by his power. And Luke, when he was presenting, this is what he was like, seeing, God, seeing Jesus' nature. And then when we look at the book of John, John was one that this is who he really was. He is Godship. And so I wanted to, to focus on that. As we look at the, uh, we're going to be in John chapter 2, if you want to go ahead and turn your Bibles there. Uh, we're going to look at the scripture about Jesus turning water into wine. 
the first miracle of Jesus' life. But before we get there, I wanted to share with you just a few things about the book of John. So the book of the Gospel of John is built around seven miracles. Have you noticed that throughout the scripture, seven is a, is, is a, is a numerical number that, that really has a lot of meaning to it? But the first miracle that is in the book of John is changing water into wine in Canaan. The second one is healing an, an official son in Capernaum. Next one was healing an invalid at the pool of Bethsaida, feeding the 5,000 near the Sea of Galilee, walking on water in the Sea of Galilee as well, healing a blind man, and raising Lazarus from the dead. I want you to understand that through each of those situations, beforehand, it was not good times. It was difficult times. It was heartache. It was death. It was a time of crisis during a time of wedding. It was people being scared because they saw a ghost. It was not enough food with a feed of 5,000. So on and so forth. And a blind man being healed. And Lazarus being raised from the dead. There were difficult times. There were stressful times. There's hardships. But finally, in the end, when Jesus came in connection with people, he changed people's lives. He changed people's thought processes. He changed their faith in who he was. And so I want, that's kind of what I want to stress today. But also, then I want to also focus, and we could spend a whole semester on the book of John. There's also the seven I am's. And this is correlating with my sermon, because I want you to understand, throughout the scriptures, throughout the book of John, the first one is, I am the bread of life. These are declarations of who Jesus is. These are statements that Jesus proclaims that he is. I am the light of the world. In John chapter 8, verse 12. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. Those are the seven proclamations, seven I am statements that are stated through the book of John. So when you start reading the book of John, look at the, the idea of the big miracles that are taking place and also then the seven I am's, who Jesus is proclaiming he is. Now, I want you to understand that Jesus is proclaiming who he is in your life today. But the question is, how, who do you say that Jesus is? So as I get into our text here, I want to ask you guys a question. Do you guys remember when you, if, if you've been married, if you are married, do you remember all the preparations it took to get married? Do you remember your wedding day? Uh, okay, you can respond. Say yes or no. All right, no one, okay. Anyway, so if we're, hopefully this will be a fun sermon series. Hopefully it will be. Interesting thing is I looked at, a checklist of there are over 1,500 things that you are supposed to do or they encourage you to do before your wedding day. There is a lot of preparation that it comes to getting your wedding date ready. Let me just name a few things. you got to have your apparel. you got to have your, your tuxedos, bridal shoes, uh, bridal slip, some other things I'm not going to mention. Um, some children apparel, honeymoon clothes, your, all this kind of stuff that they go through. And I had to ask my wife on a couple of things. I didn't know what these things were. I didn't really care about them either. But as we look at these things, there's a lot of preparation that it takes to get ready for a marriage. And normally the day of the wedding is the most important aspect of the whole day. That's what we Americans, that's what we today really look for is just that one particular day when the dad gets to walk the bride down, when the mom is giving away her daughter, her son, whoever it is, and it's an exciting time. But do you realize today that the average cost of a wedding in 2019 was 33,000 stinking dollars? And do you know how much they pay pastors to do a wedding? <laughs> I'm not bitter, but $100... 
out of 33,000 is not right. No, I'm just sort of joking. I go for the food, too. Uh, I get, we get our money's worth at the buffet. But, uh, you know, I was thinking about this. How We seriously, I don't know who spends $33,000 on a wedding. That's, that's crazy. Absolutely crazy. Lori and I, we did not do that. But it's interesting because it brings up a thought process. I love my father-in-law. He's passed away. And I want to tell you a quick story about my father-in-law. So my father-in-law, was a, his name was Bob. Very, very smart, intelligent guy. Way smarter than me. And anytime we talked, uh, he was normally above my head. If, unless it was politics or Christianity, I was good. Anything else, I was just like, he just was very, very sharp. So Lori, I was visiting Lori one day. And we were um, just, it was a Saturday. And my, my father-in-law said, hey, Mike, let's, let's go ahead and go for a drive. Just us? I said, yeah, just us. Because he's also one of those quiet people. And quiet people make me nervous. Because uh, quiet people, in my family, just we're, we're, we're talkers. And so if you're quiet, that means something's wrong. Uh, so on and so forth. I've gotten past that point now. But he was very quiet. So we get in the car. We're driving. We drive for 30 minutes. This is Tulsa's, Tulsa, Oklahoma. We're going. We pull up to this hotel. It's a Sheraton Hotel. Now, Sheraton's, Sheraton's a nice hotel. When I was growing up, we were Motel 6. We were Super 8. We were the 1995 or the $17.95 hotels. That's where my family, that's what we kind of stay, we stayed at. So we go into this hotel, and my father-in-law, we walk up to the reception, and uh, the receptionist area, and she says, hey, I'm Bob Moon. Uh, I, need to see a mo- I need to see a room. This is kind of weird. Um, <laughs> so, okay, Dad, or I didn't call him Dad at that point. I said, okay, Bob, what are we doing? He said, well, I just want to show you the room. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, Lord, Nancy and I want to buy your guys' honeymoon night. We just want to purchase a hotel room for you, and we just want to make it a, a great night. I said, well, that, that's nice. And this place had room service, and it was much better than Super, or the Super 6, or Super, whatever, the Motel 6. So we go into this room. They let us into this room. And my father-in-law says, Michael, what do you think? Looks good. Looks good to me. He said, he said well, just what about the bed? Is the bed good? <laughs> what do you tell your future father-in-law? Uh, yeah, it's great. Anyway, said, yeah, it's great. Let's go. So we got out of there really quick. It was a little uncomfortable at first, but then I knew his intention. He wanted everything to be perfect for his daughter. He wanted everything to be lined up, no worry about payments, because we were making dirt money back in the day, and everything to be perfect. And it was such a great thought process, and I love his heart, because he didn't really know how to express it to me, but he wanted to make sure everything was in order. So I love that. And so then it's brought to my mind, how, did you guys have any incidences when you got married? Any major issues? Any, any, anything that took place? I can imagine with Steve getting married, I can imagine some consequ- something happening with you. Uh, he chuckles. So there's one time I was doing a wedding in Kansas. During this wedding, we were, we were at a church. I don't know where we were. The, they were hungry, so they went and got McDonald's. They, they were eating McDonald's, and then they threw away the trash. And about 20 minutes before the wedding, we could not find the wedding rings. It was completely gone. We searched everyone's pockets. We were looking on the floor, and one of the groomsmen thought, well, maybe it's in the McDonald bag in the dumpster. And the dumpster's one of the big dumpsters outside, so without the bride knowing what's going on, this one groomsman takes his clothes off, he's down to his little, his, just his underwear, he jumps into the dump, dives, dumpster, grabs the wedding ring, it was in a McDonald's bag, gets it out, and everything goes well. I tell you that story because I'm thankful the bride never knew, but also I'm thankful that things don't always go as planned. Sometimes we have problems, sometimes we have issues going on. So, turn your Bibles to John chapter 2, 1 through 11, if you would. This is our scripture for the day. We're going to kind of cover it pretty thoroughly, okay? So, this is Jesus turning water into wine. 
It says this, On the third day of a wedding took place at Canaan in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. Each held 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. Then he said to them, Go, draw out some water, and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from. Though the servant had been bringing, though the, sorry, I just messed my place. Um, the servants had drawn the water anew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have gone, had too much to drink. But each of them saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Can- Canaan of Galilee was the first of the signs which will be revealed his glory and his disciples believed in, in him. It's interesting that our marriages today are completely different from, well, how they are in the Jewish culture. The Jewish culture is completely set up and structural, completely different. This is how a Jewish system works. The Jewish marriage includes a number of steps. First, the betrothal, which involves the prospective groom traveling from his father's house to the home of the prospective bride, paying the purchase price or the endowment, and this establishing the marriage covenant. Second, the groom's return to his father's house, which meant remaining separate from the bride for 12 months, during which time he prepared the living accommodations for his wife at his father's house. Third, the groom coming from his, from his, for his bride at the time, not knowing exactly to her. Fourth, he returns to her with her groom's, to the groom's father's house to consummate the marriage and to celebrate the wedding feast for the next seven days. First, I want you to understand that this may seem a little different, but I need to give you a background, the difference between our Jewish culture and, and, and ours. The father of the groom made the arrangements for the marriage and paid the price, paid the, 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 the money that was entitled. How many of you guys really like prearranged marriages? I don't. Not for me, but for my kids, I believe in it. I, I, I think I should be able to choose my girls' husbands and my, and my son's um, uh, girls that they'll marry. I, I'm a complete hypocrite, I know, but I would love, I hint to my kids, hey, that's a good guy right there. That's, he's, he's in church. He's a good guy. I know him. You should, you should make contact. And so, or, well, not in a physical way, but other ways. All right, anyway, before I get myself in trouble. I, so the prearranged marriages. So first, the father was the groom, determined the timing. Second, prior to the groom's leaving to fetch for the bride, he must have a place prepared for his bride. This was followed by the third step, the wedding ceremony, to which we a few or the whole town would be invited prior to the wedding service ceremony. And the fourth step, the marriage feast, which would come and come last for many seven days. Many people would invite their, free, their fee, friends and family members to the feast. Okay, my next slide is it's really theologically correct, okay? Jesus was a cool guy. <laughs> I have to remember I wrote this last night about whatever time it was. But I want to point out something to you which just really, really makes an impact upon my life. The scripture says that Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. How many of you guys have been invited to a wedding before? I mean, pretty much all of us have been invited at some point or some time to a wedding. 
Now, if you remember when you were preparing your wedding at one time, a lot of times you're on a budget, right? I don't know if you have the $33,000 budget like other people in the United States, but if you didn't, a lot of times we check people off. Well, that person, we can't invite them because we only have 100 people slot, so we need to make sure we can only invite so many people. And how do you go through that list of inviting certain people and not inviting certain people? Oh, that guy, he's got money. He's coming. Oh, that guy, he doesn't eat very much. He's coming. That guy, they're really good people, so they can come as well. You know, I don't know how you guys chose who got to come to your wedding and who didn't. Not to worry about that. But I know here, Jesus was invited to a wedding. And to me, that makes a very big impact upon my life. Because you know what that means? That means that Jesus was liked. That Jesus was cared for. That people liked him as a friend. Remember, he had done no miracles to this point. No, no miraculous feedings, no healing, no, no bringing people from the dead, nothing. He is completely just an ordinary guy except his birth that brought him to existence. And so now he, has, he and his disciples have been invited to a wedding. You normally invite special people to the wedding, correct? People that mean something to you, people that have impact upon your life, so on and so forth. And here, for some reason, this young couple brought Jesus to the wedding. So here's a scripture that says this. I'm probably, Jerry, I'm probably, sorry. Probably out of, out of line on my slides a little. You gotta forgive me because Jesus says you have to. So, and we're in church, so you have to. All right. So on the third day, a wedding took place at Canaan in Galilee. Jesus's mother was there, and Jesus's disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus's mother said to him, "They have no more wine, woman. Why do you involve me?" Jesus replied, "My hour has not yet come." His mother said to the servants. Do whatever he tells you. I've already talked to you about Jesus being invited to the, to the wedding, but they ran out of wine. This is a major issue in the Jewish culture of running out of wine. To fail to provide their adequately for their guests would cause a social disgrace for the rest of their marriage. Additionally, wine was a rabbinical symbol of joy. Therefore, to run out of wine would almost have been the equivalent of admitting that neither the guests nor the bride or the groom were happy. Mary said they have no wine. Why did Mary ask Jesus to do something? Nothing. He's done no miracles to this point. He, he refers to Mary. Mary was asking, you need to take care of this situation. And Jesus responds, and there's a lot of different ways that we, uh, we answer the question how Jesus responds to his mom, okay? Some, some commentary says it was a respect. Some commentary says he was, he was just uh, doing a separation between him and his, and, and his mom, between God. But Jesus says, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? Okay, gentlemen, I, am, I know I'm not the sharpest guy in the, in, in the room sometimes, but if you want to get your wife's attention, call her woman. And see what happens. It's not normally a good thing. My wife is a little five foot two girl, and you call her woman, do it after church and see what happens. She will let you know how she feels about you calling her woman. And I love to do it once in a while, just on those special occasions, um, just to make sure we're good. If I want to get in an argument, guess what? Woman, I need my dinner. Uh, doesn't go over well. It's a joke. It's really a joke. <laughs> it is. Once again, my name is Michael Maynard. Text me if you got any problems. My last name's Longfellow. Okay, sorry. All right, so with this, we look at the situation. I gotta stay to my notes. Mary tells the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. Do whatever he tells you to do. 
The, the recorded words of Mary are very, very few throughout Scripture. We don't have a lot of context of what Mary says, except the things that were told earlier when Jesus was, was being uh, in, in the womb. So there's not a lot of issues going on. There's not a lot of conversations. But he, she tells the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. And I, I ask myself the question, why did, Jesus, why did Mary automatically just respond to have an idea that Jesus is going to take care of this situation? Sorry. And that's one question I really want to know, but eventually we're not going to know these things. Jesus looked, I love this about Jesus, Jesus looked for teachable moments in people's lives. He looked, always looked for a spot where someone was going through difficulties, and he would step in, he would save the day, and he would teach them. I absolutely love that about Jesus. And so here, as we look, I, I need to tell you a story as we, before we continue going on. So let me, ask you, let me make this statement. Do you know women live seven to eight years longer than guys? Normally women live an average of seven to eight years longer than guys. And I will tell you this because we don't always follow the advice of our, of our spouse. Sometimes we are slow. I'm talking to my, about myself. Sometimes we are just, we're just, we think we can do what we used to be able to do when we were younger. So last week, uh, I, I ran a marathon. I, my goal was just to run a marathon and, and get it complete and be part of that 1% that, that the people that ran a marathon. My wife told me I shouldn't do it. I'm old. I'm not, I haven't trained. Uh, you're supposed to have like an 18-week training period. I looked for six-week training periods, and there was no such thing. But I thought, hey, I can do it. I am wise. I'm in shape. I'm, 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 I can do it. So during this time, I'm, we go down to near St. George. I'm running the race. Uh, we start at elevation uh, 4,400 4, feet. It, it's snow. There's ice. For the first three miles, it's just slick. It, it's just it's horrible. I didn't train for that. Excuse number one. And I did all my training on the, on the treadmill, too. So as we're running, I do well. I do really, really well till about mar- marker 18. So I get to 18, mile 18, and I'm, I'm struggling. My, my legs hurt. My calves hurt. My feet hurt. Anything you mention about my body, it hurts. It, it's just miserable. I was thinking about ways I could try to get hurt that my wife would have to come pick me up. And take me back because I knew I had a long ways to go. So during this time, I, I know my time is not great. I, I kind of just I go to the side. I'm, I'm kind of just resting. I'm I'm stretching. And there's this little little she's a 13 year old kid, little punk kid, that comes by and bless her little heart. I really mean that part. She says, "Hey, are you okay, Mister?" I said, and when I get tired, my sometimes my left eye droops a little. And so she said, you just don't look good. You look like you had a stroke. Are you all right? That's why I called her a punk. She's a punk. Disrespectful. Very disrespectful. My boys wouldn't marry her. Uh, just sort of, sort of just joke. But it, was, it made me laugh. It was, I thought, man, she took off. And I never saw her again until the finish line. I mean, she beat me by long ways because she was young. And she'd been training. And I thought, wow, that little girl. And I thought, that's really, really sad. So they gave me a little more motivation to keep going because I'm not going to have a stroke on this way and not finish my race. I'm going to prove to my wife I can do these things. So then at marker number 24, so I got two miles left. I'm like, 
I'm, I'm sort of running. It's an ugly run. Have you ever seen an ugly run before? You can actually walk faster than you actually run. So I'm walking. I'm in town now, and I'm kind of doing this hippity hop thing. I got blisters on my feet. My ankle's out of place. And this guy comes out of a grocery store. He's carrying a bag of groceries and a milk, milk gallon milk, and he passes me. And the true story, this is a true story, only can happen to me. And he, he, he looks back, he says, hey, are you in the marathon? And I got this stupid thing on, as a, not a rhetorical question, I knew he was making fun of me. It was kind of funny, though, because I would have done the same thing. Um, so he, he asked, are you in the marathon? I said, yeah. He said, well, you're not doing too good. Because he passes me, this guy passes me, walk a block ahead, and then he goes, and I never see the guy again anyway. Here's the deal. I finally make it to 26.2. I finally cross the finish line. I was miserable. I was, I don't know, I was dehydrated. I was in pain. I was in agony. But when I crossed that finish line, my whole mindset changed. I was on top of the world because I finally finished one of my goals I wanted to do. So it took a lot of pain, a lot of being made fun of, which was good. They were good jokes. But to finally get to where I needed to go. I wanted to go through the valley. I want to go through the journey to get to the end to see if I could do it. And my friends, that's what faith is all about, is going through the trials, going through the hardships, and getting to the point where God wants you to be. Your race is not over. You are still racing, and you're going to get cramps. You're going to be dehydrated. You're going to feel sick to your stomach. You're going to want this thing to end. But God is going to continue and continue to say, keep going. Take one more step. All you need is more, another step, and you're closer to me. What's that got to do with anything? It's got to do with this, because I want you to understand, when Jesus told the servants, verse 6, nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used for Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water and had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants had drawn the water new. Then he called the bridegroom aside. He said, everyone brings out the choice wines before the cheaper wine, after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best to last. What Jesus did here at Canaan of Galilee was the first step, was the first sign of many miracles. So I went, I'm kind of echoing. Is it me? Well, apparently it's me. That's not any better. All right. So we have six water pots of stone. Jesus begins his miracle by using what he had at hand. I, I want you to understand, Jesus could have made wine out of anything. He didn't have to tell the servants to fill the water, the, water, uh, the, the pots full of water. He used what he had at hand. Now, once you understand, wherever you are at this moment, wherever you are with your faith, wherever you are in life, God is going to use what is around you to bring you one step closer to him. He's going to bring that revelation of where you are into a better situation the next day or that next moment. Because God works with the things that are around him. According to the manner of purification of the Jews, the water parts are connected with a system of law because they were used for ceremonial cleansing. Jesus said, fill the pots, fill them full. And Jesus were in a unique place of this miracle, the servants were. Do you realize that the servants had faith? The servants never tested the water to make sure it was wine. 
They just did immediately what Jesus told them to do, and they took it to the master of the ceremonies. Do you understand what would take place if you gave someone some water that was supposed to be wine? Do you realize the ramifications that would have taken place? The servants believed in Jesus. They believed that he could do something because they went by faith that this water was now wine. Very interesting to me because I want to ask myself the question. This is a question I ask myself. How many times do I bring people into a better relationship with God because of my faith? These people believed and they've never seen the miracles of Jesus before. How many times do we allow the negativism, uh, the, 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 the stress, the heartache, the gossip, whatever, affect our relationship with our coworkers, with our friends and our families? How often do we allow those things to push people away from Jesus rather than to draw them to Jesus? Rather than knowing that we have faith and one step closer to having a good, a, a better and I can't say that, I'm sorry, uh, to have a, a more perfect life. Because I will tell you, my friends, this life is not perfect. And it will never be perfect. And I can't promise you all the miracles of the world, because we know that's not going to take place. But every step we get closer to God, our faith in God, our, will bring people into a better relationship. Or do we repel people? I will tell you, there are times I know my attitude has repelled people. My actions have repelled people. Those things I do, not because I don't believe in Christ as I do, but sometimes I just don't think about who is watching me at that very moment. And my friends, that's what integrity is all about. These servants did what Jesus told them to do. These servants were especially blessed because they obeyed without question. And to the fullest, they filled them up to the brim. Draw some water out. Take it to the master. Take it to the master of ceremonies. You, and the master of ceremonies, once he got some wine, he said, you have kept the good wine until now. When Jesus made the wine, it was good wine. It doesn't mean that it had particular high alcohol content, but it was well-made wine. All right. I, I got to give you a little background. Some of us all have theological history, theological baggage, whatever you want to call it. I have been taught before that when Jesus made wine, it really wasn't wine, it was just grape juice. All right, the scripture says wine, wine means wine, all right, wine means alcohol, not grape juice. All right, I was, I was taught some of those things that when, when Jesus made that wine, it really wasn't wine, it was just really, really good grape juice. Mm, no, the Greek word for alcohol means alcohol, and that's where it is. But I want to also tell you, I don't want to take lightly a people that struggle with alcoholism, okay? So I'm not encouraging, I'm not trying to make fun, I'm not trying to make light of the situation of when Jesus made wine. That was a very, very good thing. But I want to make you understand, I don't, I'm not encouraging you to all go out and drink and, and so on and so forth. That's on your conscience, where you are at. But as I see this, Jesus made the wine, and the wine was, was good. It was very, very good. And it reminds me, going back to in the, in the garden, when God created the world and God created, things were good. As we look at the scripture, this is the beginning of Jesus' signs he did in, Can- in Canaan uh, throughout his ministry. How did Jesus actually do the miracles? He did it in different ways. He just did it. Here's a correlation I want to point out. Moses turned water into blood. Showing the laws result in death. But Jesus' first miracle turned water into wine, showing the gladness and joy of his new work. 
This is the act of John from 117. For the law was given through Moses, but grace through truth through Jesus Christ. Do you understand? We are under a new covenant. Or we are no longer under the law that, de- that desired, that required death. A sacrificial death, a sacrificial animal death. We are under this new law where Christ, the good God, died for you and me that we can have everlasting life. There's a huge difference between those, those two things. The wine was after the water. The new covenant is after the old covenant. The wine was from the water. The new covenant is from the old covenant. The wine was and better than the water. The new covenant is better than the old covenant. This talks about God's glory. Okay, so we can take, I want to make sure we understand that this sermon series, Good Times, is that we look at where you are in life. And you can have a disaster going on of running out of wine during a wedding, running out of food at your wedding, running out of whatever the situation is. And God can take what is surrounding you, what is around you, and use that for good, and use that for excellence. Because that's the correlation here. Jesus turning the water into wine marked the beginning of his ministry. There are many other things we can see in the situation. We can see more. Jesus is the bridegroom. And the marriage supper of, G- of, G- of the Lamb. Jesus is the vine. At the Last Supper, the wine represents the blood that G- cleanses us inside. The simplicity of this miracle, the simplicity of grace found in Jesus. How many of us always are striving to earn our salvation with God? We want to please God. We want to make sure we earn God's love. And the simplicity of turning water into wine for Jesus is a piece of cake. And also turning us into perfect people is beautiful and simple because that's who Jesus is. His blood purifies you. His blood cleanses you. It's nothing more that you do on your own. You accept a gift. And that gift is salvation through Jesus Christ. And I love this. It's written on the third day of the wedding. So this miracle happened on the third day. We turned water into wine. Guess what happened on the third day with Jesus? He rose from the grave. So we have correlation there. And Jesus was told, you have saved the best till now. The new covenant is better covenant based on better promises. I will tell you, my friends, I'm so thankful I'm not under the Old Testament law. I'm thankful. I don't want to have to kill animals for my sins. I don't want to have to do a purification. I don't want to have to do all the things of the Old Testament law, period. I, I don't. I'm so thankful that we have a relationship with Jesus on who he is because what he did for you and I. The correlation of the blood that cleanses us all. That is what we are striving for. That is what makes the the bad times we can make into good times. Struggling with your mortgage? Understand. Struggling with your car payment? Absolutely. Struggling with your spouse? Understand. Struggling with whatever your situation you're struggling with? Do you understand that God is going to use those things to bring you closer to Him? He will use those things if you allow it. If not, it's going to drive you further away. And my friends, I promise you, you are going to face trials and and problems, situations, heartache. It's guaranteed because the evil one comes to kill, steal, and destroy. But Jesus comes to give life and more abundantly. So as Jesus turned the water into wine, Jesus can turn your life into something beautiful. If you are a believer in Christ, you are already a beautiful person. If you are a non-believer, you, you are still in your sins. 
And Jesus died for you, you know, for your sins to be forgiven, for you to have everlasting life. A young man who asked me the question, what must I do to make sure I'm in heaven when I die? The ultimate answer is this. You must give your life over to Jesus. Claim him as Lord and Savior. And follow him. And my friends, you will be saved. That's all you have to do. Pretty simplistic? Absolutely. But Jesus loves you so very much. He does not want you to be isolated. He does not want you to be alone. But he wants you in the fellowship of believers. He wants you in his fold, covered with the blood. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you, God, for the day. I thank you, Lord, for who you are, the ability to turn water into wine, something that I'm not able to do, something only that you are able to do. And Lord, such a simplistic message, but with, with profound statements. Lord, that you are a good God.